Welcome to Capturing COVID, a podcast that takes experiences and turns them into memories. I'm sure everyone can think of ways that COVID-19 has impacted you after almost three years. Whether it was working from home for the first time, those on the front line treating positive COVID-19 patients as medical professions, or many of us, including our guests this week, making critical decisions for children's, adolescents, students returning to school or sports, We created this podcast for you all so we can document the stories and the history of COVID-19 from so many different perspectives. We are passionate about giving our audience, you all, a resource to listen, relate, and reminisce on a time in history that the world and I definitely will never forget, the COVID-19 pandemic. So tune in for this 60-minute episode with a great guest today and future awesome guests and inspiring stories with me, Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious diseases physician at Washington University and the Schnook Family Endowed Chair of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Okay, guys, welcome. Glad you joined us again. We're going to build off the last episode with a really great friend who became a friend because of the pandemic, Dr. Mark Halstead. Welcome, Mark. Well, thanks. I appreciate the uh, invitation here. You know, Mark, actually, uh, just to get started, is kind of part of the inspiration for this podcast because... Uh, Mark has his own podcast called the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast and had me on during the pandemic and uh, basically showed me that, man, you can actually do this and still have a full-time job. So I'm going to first off just thank you for that. You're welcome. You know, you were you were episode number seven, your first time on. We had you on several times because this was this was the hot topic. Yeah, there was only one reason why an infectious diseases doctor would be on a sports medicine podcast, and it happened to be because of a pandemic. Hey, there are plenty of infectious disease issues that affect athletes. Mono is one of them. And, you know, we there's there's lots of things that we have to deal with from a sports standpoint. We could talk about the Michael Jordan flu game. I mean, there's plenty of stuff there. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And, I, and of course, as a diehard sports fan, that was a, a dream for me. Now, let's go over who you are, Mark. Uh, Dr. Halstead is a professor of pediatrics and orthopedics here at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a director of the sports concussion program. He's a medical director of our Young Athletes Center, medical director of the Progress West Clinic. This is one of my favorites right now, Mark. I'll be honest, the next one. He's the venue medical director for the new St. Louis City Major League Soccer team, which had your the first scrimmage yesterday on February 18th. Is that correct? Last preseason game of the season, yes, against Atlanta. <laughs> Dude, that has to be so exciting. It's a beautiful facility. It's going to be a fun, fun thing. We're a soccer crazy city, as you know. Yes. So, all right, a couple other things. He's a board member for the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for the Missouri State High School Activities Association, which we all call Misha for short because it's so long. He did his undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, then medical school, University of Wisconsin Medical School. Is that in Madison? That is in Madison. So you definitely are a major, I mean, you're a cheesehead Wisconsinite through and through. <laughs> I am. Uh, then he did uh, residency, I said, a fellowship at Vanderbilt University in non-operative pediatric and adult sports medicine. And like I said, I just want to reiterate, please follow his uh, sports medicine podcast if you have interest. His most recent episode is really, really cool on the young athlete and mindfulness. And man, that I, I'm partway through. I can't wait to listen more. I think that's a really cool topic, especially for all of us. Absolutely. So welcome, Mark. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we are recording this on a Sunday morning. This is how busy Dr. Halstead is um, <laughs> as a very active clinician, seeing tons of patients. And 
I can tell you, we really met because of our interest in sports and getting people back to, or getting people, getting our kids back into sports when at the beginning of the pandemic, which we touched on some in Katie's episode. To start, Mark, I just really want to go back and just tell me what the pandemic was like for you and your family when this all started in March of 2020. I have, at the time, I had a junior in high school, I had a freshman in high school, and an eighth grader. And my junior was all excited about getting ready to start a tennis season. And he had been in track the year before, had an injury, so mentally he wasn't really prepared to get back to track, but really was excited about tennis. And that season obviously just went out the window. My wife was getting ready to coach a track season. And obviously that went out the window. You know, you go from four and a half days a week in clinic down to where I'm sitting at home three out of the days out of the week. I'm doing going into the office basically to do virtual visits um, with telehealth. And if you can imagine a specialty like sports medicine, where really it does have to be hands on, I have to be examining someone of trying to do exams on patients and directing them to do various maneuvers over telehealth. It was impressive. It was an interesting way to try and uh, figure out new ways to be able to examine someone without putting putting hands on them. It was different and uh, it was a little scary. I mean, as you know, here at WashU, we had the outbreak amongst our emergency medicine physicians after they had gone to a conference. And so we had a lot of our emergency medicine doctors who were out because of COVID. And that was a little scary for me because then they came up with this plan as far as, hey, here's a whole bunch of people and departments that can come in and sub for the ER. And for orthopedics, we were on that potential pool and they basically came up with a randomized list. I was number three on the list to be potentially called in. I'm like, oh gosh, please don't make me get called in. Please don't make me get called in. I go, I do kind of ER stuff on a sideline. I've not done adult medicine. I don't, you know, as far as wow. being able to handle stuff there, I could suture somebody up. Sure. I could take care of your, your bone injury. I could see you for your head injury, but don't, don't let me try and deal with your MI or something like that. So so I was glad that we didn't activate that. Unfortunately, our ER colleagues and, and God bless them as far as the stuff that they went through and, and obviously still even go through to some extent, getting through the whole early part of that pandemic. Dude, I can't, I didn't, I forgot all about that. Yeah. Oh, I remember because I remember being number three on the list. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, please don't let me call it in. I, one of our hand surgeons was number one, and I knew he would not have been happy if he actually got called in at all. It is interesting to, re, to go back and relive all of these different contingency plans that were put in place on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. uh, where we were all kind of set up to potentially see patients. So like St. Louis Children's Hospital was set up to potentially take overflow on the 11th floor. And we were all in a list of covering that. I mean, it was, whew, thankfully it never happened. I know. But I mean, and that just goes to show how good the planning was and, and how much everybody really truly did pitch in in that situation there. And, you know, it's 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 crazy just thinking about that. I mean, personally, I was I do try and do a half marathon once or once or twice a year. And so I was training for the Flying Pig half marathon in Cincinnati. And obviously that got canceled. So I did a virtual version of it because everything went to virtual, of course. And so I did my half marathon on the Katy Trail here in St. Louis, which is a long rails to trails place. So it was a much probably better half marathon for me because it was super flat compared to going to Cincinnati where it's hilly as all get out. So well, that part was fun. I had my, my wife and my daughter came in on bike support at various points there to give me some water and things along the course of it. But I, there was literally nobody out there even at that time. And this is outdoors still. And this is this is April now. It's so interesting to think back to that, right? And, and go, oh yeah, 
we shut down everything. Even anything outdoors got shut down, and, and that's what people would went to, right, were these virtual sort of competitions. And I know you and your family are, are runners, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's like core to you guys. I mean, but, you know, even going back and thinking about this, you know, when we're thinking about going outside, I mean, do you remember all the reports about all this environmental stuff that was happening that was good because we were all locked down? Like animals were coming back to places. The water was becoming blue again. It was like, holy cow, we really do trash this planet pretty bad. <laughs> That's true. Right. And the emissions level and you have people are like, oh, yeah, you can see now in these like major metropolitan areas. It is an interesting thing how, yeah, we just would slow down a bit. Sometimes we'll even make we'll make the climate better. So, oh, let me I forgot to give you a congratulations, by the way. Congratulations on being an honorary member to the Missouri Athletic Training Association. So Mark has been working with these folks, the athletic trainers so closely. He recently was awarded this honorary membership. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came about? Yeah, I have been a pretty big advocate for athletic trainers in the athletic training profession over the course of my career. And they've I, I learned a lot from them early on, and, and now I hope I'm giving back to them as well, and I'm still learning from them. And one of my colleagues from Arizona actually put in a nomination to the National Athletic Training Association uh, as submitting me to be an honorary member, which is one of their awards that they do annually. And so I was selected for this year, which is a tremendous honor, and I'm super, super thankful about that. I Like I said, I can't say enough about athletic trainers and the role they do and, and the, the part that they hold in the athletic training profession. So it was really – humbling and just a wonderful honor uh, to get that from from them well congratulations let me restate he's national athlete national member honorary member i apologize i misspoke there it was clear to me that that was definitely in our initial conversations that was key to you that you had learned so much from from them throughout your career and you're working back and forth so it seemed natural that you know having katie our athletic trainer and and you and I think our group really supported her as kind of one of our leaders in, in this work. But to go to that, so for those who might be listening for the first time, in St. Louis, we had basically this overall pandemic task force that kind of was three major healthcare systems working together to address the needs of the health systems with COVID-19. With that, Mark, him, and I think Jeff Neppel, maybe, is that who else worked with you? Yep. And uh, Paul Jenkins, one of our physical therapists. Uh-huh. Those three, as well as Katie Smith and some others from a couple other of the other health systems, came together to form an athletic task force to help come up with the guidance around getting back or getting our students, our kids back into sports. Yeah. So I remember getting an email asking if we'd be interested in participating in this. And um, just for a little background in the sports medicine world, I would say that it can be quite competitive at times, sometimes not so nice. It's a different world when we talk about that in medicine, because, you know, we think about a lot of collaboration and there is a lot of collaboration. But just from a from a, a business standpoint, I guess there is there is some competitiveness between the groups in town. So it was really I mean, it's great when Katie reached out to us and wanting us to participate in this. And, and she and Jamil Nimi had done a ton of work with this ahead of time. So uh, they get the bulk of the credit for this, no question, as far as the effort that they put into this uh, by by far. And um, they asked us to be part of this. And I'm like, I got nothing else to do. So, <laughs> I mean, why not? I go, I need something to fill up my time. And boy, did it take a, uh, it did fill up a lot of time as far as just thinking about this and, and our meetings and, and just 
you know, trying to process this as a how do how do we actually get kids potentially back to activity, especially, you know, in a world where everybody was saying, well, you can't do anything at all. And and it was we needed to try and have some common sense and try and figure this all out. And so we, we you know, we became part of this task force as well as with our, our colleagues at Mercy as well. And it was great. I mean, that that's probably one of my favorite things out of the pandemic is it, it brought the three major groups in town that uh, of the hospital groups, I should say. Not only from from what you had to deal with from the major part, you know, as far as all the hospitals trying to arrange all the major stuff, but then us just collaborating together. And it was great. I mean, I can't say enough about the group that we had. And it was just a really collegial uh, group. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was it's probably one of my my favorite parts of uh, something I've done collaboration in my career. I came in as the infectious disease person. So I didn't know that piece between our three health systems. And just to I didn't say this before, I should say our three health systems are BJC Healthcare, SSM, and Mercy. So these are the three major pl players in the St. Louis healthcare market, would say. And yeah, it's competitive. That You couldn't tell any of that during our, our calls. And we met 7 a.m. on Tuesday, hour and a half, two hours potentially, really getting into how do we do this. And one of these collaborative efforts that also was interprofessional, right? Because it didn't matter who you were from physical therapist, physician, athletic trainer, ID, we all just really banned it. And I would agree it was a, a fun and, and a, definitely a highlight because it and we were all pulling on the same rope, right? Pulling in the same direction. Well, it was great having all those different backgrounds, though, too, because we, we really needed that perspective because we all had different ways of thinking about it, which was that was the big key is we, we needed to have it be as diverse as it was with who was all at the table there. Otherwise, we would have missed some stuff and everybody brought in their own unique perspectives that really helped move things forward. I thought so too. I, I, you know, we brought in a cardiologist, Billy Orr. We brought in a medical resident who is a diabetic as well as a, a major water polo player. I mean, to make, and we really, it formed an, a really cohesive, fun group. Now, we won't go through a lot of that making the recommendation stuff, but in the last episode, we talked about, Katie and I talked about this time in July where we were seeing an increase in COVID cases as we were having kids go back to participating in some athletic endeavors. And we talked about this article that came out on July 17, 2020, where I lost my mind because I felt that the county government was blaming kids for the increase in cases. And I basically shouldn't have said some of the things I said. Regardless of that, all of this happens. Mark, what was your take as we were kind of seeing this thing, like we we're getting back to sports and we were seeing increase in cases and we were like, oh boy. Yeah, it was one of those at the time where we're like, man, is this really going to be able to happen? Because we're, you know, we're putting all this effort in and we're like, oh my gosh, we're seeing cases go up and we've got our criteria. Is this something that are we going to be able to get to the point where we actually truly have fall sports? Because that was really our goal at that time was to have fall sports happen, regardless of what happened with schools. And we can certainly talk a little bit about schools too, because obviously I have my experience of my kids having been full time. Talk about the school district and how what you guys did in your school system. Yeah. So I have a unique perspective of it too, because my wife is a school, a substitute school nurse in the district. And um, we were both a little skeptical that this was going to work, but we really felt that it was important for our kids to be able to go back. And they gave us the options of you could have your kid be virtual school if you wanted, or you can have your person or your kid be in person with masking at the time. And I thought our school district honestly did a fantastic job of a plan, uh, putting things together and trying to make it work. 
Now, obviously, with things that happen with quarantine and all those types of things kind of set some stuff up. I mean, unfortunately for my my middle son, who's in theater, he got quarantined right before a performance, so he couldn't participate in, in that. But it was one of those things that they, they really tried to make it work. And boy, when we talk about the contact tracing and we talk about our health departments, I don't think we can give enough credit to the school nurses that were there because they were doing the boatload of contact tracing and taking the brunt of parents who, you know, they, they would have to call the family again and and say, hey, you know what? We've got these kids that are quarantined. Your kid has to go home. Uh, or they were exposed and they had to go home. And it got nasty after a while, like later on. You know, early on, I think everybody kind of understood. But as pe- people's patients kind of started aware with things, then then it became an issue. And the, and they never got it, right? They had been multiple. They had been quarantined like five times. And they're like, my kid has still never had a why do you keep quarantining my child? And I will just give the people, give the listeners a little bit of suspense. We do have one of the Peds ID people that really just focused on schools to come on in a, probably after this episode. So you guys should all be waiting. Anyway, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you to your wife and to all those nurses. And we'll have to have a nurse on to relive that because you're absolutely right. That was crazy. And you know what? Just to do this little sidebar because I really like this conversation. I went out to one of the Francis House schools because they were going back. So those schools that really wanted to go back, because a lot of us believe they could, I wanted to be there to see it and talk to them. And I remember vividly being out there in the fall, standing next to the principal of Francis House, I think North, and how much those teachers and staff care about those kids and how they notice the kids that need more help, right? They notice when something's wrong, they give them that support. And I just, it just breaks my heart, all those kids that didn't have that support. A hundred percent agree. But that was my biggest nervousness is them going back to school and is, was this going to make it work? Yeah. So here we are, July of 2020, our pandemic task force is now seeing increasing cases. And we had always said that if we saw increasing cases, we were gonna back off. And we really wanted to have high school and fall sports. And we were like, oh boy, this is getting complicated. I'll let you take it from there. You know, Jason, I think you give yourself too much uh, a hard, hard. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're a little too hard on yourself with this article because that was that was raw emotion at the time for all of us. I mean, myself as well. I think I was yeah, quoting that article as well somewhere. It was one of those that at the time we were seeing just from a perspective, we were seeing club sports participate all over the region. I mean, they were traveling everywhere. They were going here and there and going, you know, baseball, soccer over the course of the summer, even some volleyball. I heard about wrestling camps and things like this. And, you know, we're trying to get some sort of semblance of some guidance out there and we're seeing cases go up. And so we're making recommendations and then basically kind of balloon from there. And we got a lot a lot of flack back after we became the blame game people, so to speak, is the way I kind of called us. I was I was a little shocked at the amount of like bad comments that was put out there on social media about our group in general and individual people on our group. I mean, I still to this day, because of lovely little physician reviews that we have online, I still have individual physician reviews like have nothing to do with my care for a patient that I've seen of basically online saying, hey, this person, you know, has no business making recommendations for COVID. It was again, they're they're there (laughs) as a patient review or patient rating on my online profile. It was shocking. I kind of started to pull away 
from social media a little bit, particularly Facebook, actually, in general around that time. But I went on Facebook after we got all these started, these things put on there, and I posted this long, long thing, just kind of explaining what our group did and what we were trying to do and what the false message was that was out there uh, as far as kind of what we were trying to push and what we were seeing for data and data that we were never, ever given that said that kids were the reason why that rates were going up, as you mentioned in that episode with Katie about, you know, we were seeing people in bars and all this kind of stuff. And we're saying that kids can't go out there and play an outdoor sport, which didn't make sense whatsoever in our heads. So it was it was a trying time. I mean, I I, I put a comment down there. I, there was a because this is around early September now when that uh, all went down on September 10th. I had this Facebook post and it had I mean, I you know, I have. I have somewhat number of friends on Facebook, but not a lot. I, I have 375 likes, 245 shares. So this thing like, I, I, you know, no one gets shares on Facebook. And then there was 121 comments after that. The vast majority of them were very supportive because it was a public post, so anybody could see it. And I know some of these parent groups that were getting really angry about sports, I think some of them shared it to realize that, hey, you know, these people were actually trying to help our kids out to get them to participate. Now, they weren't they weren't the ones that are trying to shut things down. It was nuts. And that, that that's what was so hard right when all of a sudden the backlash came to us because we're like guys you have no idea right they were talking about stopping sports altogether like no sports we were trying to move it up we were trying to get it to go faster but but we also were trying to be respectful of our hospitals and being able to care for those that needed to be you know cared for in the hospital because we didn't want to be contributing to the fact that you might not be able to get cared for if you were in a car accident because the, the hospitals were filled with covid patients well and just to put it in perspective just the politics involved with that is that we had websites for each of our sites that had all this sports information on it and after all this went down that all disappeared so all of our guidance was gone all of our recommendations were gone there was nothing left anymore right and we didn't get into that with katie's episode but you're right like we basically put all this stuff up and when they said we had to stop which was right after it was really mid-september early october they we, they we took everything got taken down but to put it in perspective so this you know that post was i said was september 10th i was actually looking back through my camera feed the other day and in, in preparation for this episode just to kind of reminisce and, and get some things triggered in my head a little bit as going back three years now you know as we get older yes. we have to go back and look at pictures to remember <laughs> things I had a post from September 4th, so six days before that post, of the very first football sideline game I was back on. So this was six days before. So I'm out in St. Charles County. And so just so you, it's for the lay of land for listeners, because if you're not in the St. Louis area, we have St. Louis City. So that's kind of the downtown to a certain area around the downtown area. And then we have St. Louis County, which is pretty much everything in the West suburbs for the most part until you hit the Missouri River. Once you hit the Missouri River, which is like if you're in St. Louis, it's a really weird thing. People have this kind of weird thing. Like if you're you know, for me in clinic, people have this. They don't want to cross the river to go to see clinic. So, so we have this clinic on the other side, which is where I run the clinic and on the other side of Missouri River, which is St. Charles County. And St. Charles County was a lot more loose. That's where actually a lot of the clubs went. To to participate for sports over the course of the summer because there was restrictions in St. Louis County and St. Louis City to be able to participate. So we were, I was considering us the wild, wild west out there because it was almost like business as usual for club sports out there. Whereas you go across to St. Louis City and St. Louis County, it was a ghost town for, for sports fields. So I had my first football game and so you know, going following our guidance, I have a picture of me with my mask on my sideline taking a selfie over the football uh, stadium as we were having our first Friday night football game of Francis Howell versus uh, Fort Zumwalt North. And, you know, going back and looking at all this stuff, I mean, me sitting on the sidelines with my mask on the whole time, having the players had masks on when they were on the sidelines, although that didn't work very well outside of the first 
quarter, to be honest with you. There was tons of masks that were on the floor, uh, around the ground and on the turf. So it was more of a big mess than anything else. And we were asking them to mask and then they would go out there and they would participate. And that was our big kind of question and debate we had for a while with footballs. You know, these players, the offensive and defensive line are breathing on each other right across from each other. What's going to happen there? And then I have the next day was my daughter's first cross country meet uh, in St. Charles County on September 5th. And so I have a picture of her and her teammates at the starting line, all with masks on to start off with. And that was my big passion, honestly, just because of the cross-country background is I really wanted to see some way to make cross-country happen. And I uh, give credit to Matt Helbig as well, who's with one of the, was one with one of the running stores and is very well known in our running community here in St. Louis, who tried to help us put together some, some common sense guidance as far as running cross-country. I mean, we thought that it would be a reasonable sport to participate in because, you know, there's, you spread out, you know, and there's running and yes, you're by each other, but there's no continuous 15 minutes and all that stuff and you know at the time we're talking about all the stuff still thinking that it was contact from from like touching things and things like that so we had we had recommendations for the face shields we had recommendations for gloves all this kind of stuff for people at the finish line we said no more than 80 runners for a race they would have to wear the mask up until three minutes before they started the race and they would have to put it in a paper bag to someone on their team who would carry it and bring it to them at the finish line so they can have it at the finish line to have their mask at the finish line but they could run their race and so it was interesting trying to have that happen But the interesting and the weirdest part of that whole thing was the spectator rule. So because of, and this was more, we were trying to get this going in St. Louis County and St. Louis City to have cross country. And there was a major race that's always at Forest Park, which is the big Forest Park. Think of it like Central Park in New York, which interestingly just got voted the best city park. There's a race that's there and we're thinking about spectators and the rule at the time was no gatherings more than 50. And this was outdoors too. But if you think about a cross country course, a cross country course navigates 3.1 miles and if we're talking about 50 spectators over the course of 3.1 miles, it really didn't make any sense. So the city was not providing permits to allow these races to happen because it would exceed the gathering size that was at the time, which again, if we look back in some of this stuff, I mean, gosh, I know we were all trying to figure it out at the time. And, and it's great looking back with the retrospectoscope and looking at these things and kind of figuring out how can we figure out this better? I mean, we still just obviously didn't know all of how the virus was transmitted at that time well. So we were trying to figure out ways to make it happen. But, you know, if we know what we know now, I mean, clearly we would have made it different. And, you know, the cross country season went off without a hitch. I mean, just to put it in perspective, I mean, my my two kids who had been in school this whole time, I mean, I had my son go off to Mizzou after two years and he's been there for two years. Neither my daughter, my my youngest or my son have yet to have been COVID positive. And that's participating in sports, being in school. Now, granted, they were bigger maskers for more of the majority of the time than probably most. But the only one that's gotten COVID that we know of out of her family, because I, I haven't tested positive yet, and neither has my wife, is my son at Mizzou when he was at college. And that was his... It's uh, second year. So and that was a trying time for him, just trying to navigate that. He felt horrible. It was clear that you were so important for the cross-country community. Because you made it happen. You haven't, and I'm going to give you a huge credit. I was thinking back as my daughter, as a freshman in high school that year, ran cross country. And she got to run the whole year. And I remember, I didn't get to go to the Forest Park meet, but I remember that was her first one and she ran great and I got to hear about it. But it was this, but but you, you know, that's what I want listeners to know is that there's these people like Mark and Mark, you mentioned this, the gentleman that helped you, but you allowed us to continue to do some things in this unknown period 
in retrospect, I'd say we knew a lot more than we gave ourselves credit for because it was a coronavirus. I just think we had never paid attention from a scientific perspective, from an ID perspective around ventilation. And they had actually thought about how important ventilation was for just respiratory viruses, right? Like we just hadn't thought about that. So first off, thank you for cross country and letting us run. Secondly, I would tell you that it became clear around the football thing. Like, you know, we were all expecting, right, these high contact sports that they are close to each other. They were going to give it to each other. But the NFL, the National Football League, I don't know about you, but I was like, those guys are nuts. What are they doing? They're going to try to have a full season. And they and they actually, honestly, they showed the world that you could play outdoor sports, right? Because I don't know if you remember, I think it was the Minnesota Vikings had an outbreak in their team right after a game with, I want to say Tennessee. I can't remember now. But nobody on the other team got it, right? So all they had, all, but they just played. I'm like, there was infectious people crushing against another. They never got it. I went to Notre Dame. Notre Dame had an outbreak after a team meal before the University of South Florida game. No one at University of South Florida got it. You started to see that these outdoor sports, even if they're big time collision on top of each other, they just ain't getting it. For, you know, there there is a little football side of that and, and how it affected the team that I cover for Francis Hall High School. We, they didn't have any big outbreaks of kids. Um, there was, you know, a few here and there. And obviously there were some quarantine things that had to happen there too, from exposures during with school and outside of school events and things like that. But then we had, um, we got to the playoffs and we had won our first playoff game and we were waiting to see who we would play. And then we got the announcement that we had a buy for the next week because following that game, actually several members of the team that we were supposed to play tested positive. So they had to quarantine the team. So they had to forfeit. So there were there were a lot of these here that we had these forfeiting episodes. And we can, you know, if you want, we can transition a little bit to kind of how we did things at the state level. Oh, by the way, I just real quick aside, congrats to Francis Howell on winning the state title this past year, right? Didn't they just win? Yeah, they did. That was a pretty fun, fun deal for them. Yeah. So I was I was there up in Columbia. It was a fun, uh, fun season. They really a uh, great team. So yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. So Mark, you had a major role in regards to the Missouri State High School Sports Association when it came to dealing with this. So love to hear your how this goes down and how you guys came about and made these decisions. Yeah, so we had um, two of us, um, in addition to myself, uh, Greg Canty, who's a pediatric sports medicine physician over in, yep, at Children's uh, Hospital uh, over in uh, Kansas City. And then Jim Rayner, he's an athletic trainer down in Springfield. So we uh, were a subcommittee from the, the Misha Sports Medicine Advisory Group. And we were we were basically our, our, our mini COVID task force. And, you know, we leaned heavily uh, because of my involvement with our St. Louis task force. We leaned heavily on our recommendations and adopting those at the state level. But I have to give lots of credit to Kerwin Urhan, who uh, was at the time, he was the executive director of Misha and Greg Stahl, who is the one at Misha, Misha staff member who oversaw our sports medicine advisor committee. They were fantastic as far as trying to implement what we did and getting the message out to people around the state uh, without their support. I don't think we could have made it happen. And they're, 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 both of their roles were fantastic in the sense that we all had the same perspective and we came into it with like, we're just going to try to make this happen. We don't know what's going to happen, but we just want to make sports happen in some way, shape or form. And we'll do whatever. We know that we're probably not going to do it perfect. And that was our manta going into this is that we, we were just, we know we weren't going to make it perfect. Things were going to happen. We were going to have to be flexible and move uh, when major events happened, but we just wanted to make things go. And to put it back into perspective, going back to March of 2020, so there was basketball playoffs going on at that time. 
And we were trying to sort that out at that level. Well, how do we make it happen? And I was like, I'm cringing like, yeah, like how do we do basketball playoffs and all that kind of stuff? And I was not super thrilled about the idea of having, you know, people get together for basketball playoffs, but they made it happen. They did, you know, they did all the things that we were doing, take temperatures before you come in. If you were a spectator, it was only family members and they had to take temperatures. But we let the kids finish out their basketball playoffs around that time when everything was shutting down. So we were kind of letting things kind of go a little bit. And then things did shut down. Spring sports truly did shut down. And then we came back with a plan for the fall. And again, I think it worked. You know, I I was skeptical. I will freely admit, I was like, I don't know that this is going to work. I could be the one that's the big bullseye on there of, hey, this was the guy that was trying to help with trying to make sports happen and cause lots of spread around the state because we did kind of push for sports. So it was a big risky thing on our end to to make that leap. But looking back in retrospect, I'm actually glad we did because I know and unfortunately for lots and lots of other kids around the country and, and around the world for that matter, sports didn't happen for them for quite some time. And I mean, I had several patients in my office that I saw that actually moved from other states because they knew that their states weren't allowing sports participation at all and they wanted their kids to have some avenue. I mean, that's an extreme, obviously, right? Where you're moving states to let your kid participate in sports. What was it that drove you and the group? Or what was the thought that why you really wanted to make this happen for the kids? And I want to thank you because, again, my I have a daughter that was a freshman that played a whole season of basketball in mass and never got COVID. She got COVID the next year, right? Like when we had Omicron. Like she didn't get it the first year. So tell me, what was it that drove you guys? Why did you think this was so important to have, to be able to have our kids could have sports? Well, I mean, we know the benefits of physical activity in general, right? I mean, physical activity helps academic performance. When you talk about that, it helps just your mental state, which obviously we know coming out of the pandemic now that mental health of our adolescents and under is in a horrible state right now. I mean, it was it was already in a bad state going up to that. So let's not put that there. Let, like the pandemic was the cause of all the mental health crisis in kids. It was there and we definitely need more mental health professionals. No question about that to, to deal with all these things that our kids are dealing with. Just getting back involved in sports and having some semblance of normalcy at a time where there was no idea when we were going to have any sort of normalcy. I mean, I kind of liken this in the world of myself and I and maybe this is my perspective of it, of dealing with concussions where I have a patient that comes in with a concussion. I can't tell that person exactly when they're going to get better. I mean, it's different than an infectious disease. I can tell them you're going to take these antibiotics for seven to 10 days and you're, you're we expect you to be fine and you expect your infection to be cured. But a concussion, I don't know that. So I've already dealt with a lot of this nebulous diagnosis of when are we going to actually be able to get back to something and having that thought process. And so maybe that thought process there was one of those that, hey, at least we can try it. I don't know what's going to come out of this, but I really think that this is important for these kids to be able to participate in some way, shape or form. And we already saw it again. We saw it happening at the club level without big outbreaks from what we we were getting for data that, hey, why not? let Let's let it go. I mean, it, it just made sense. Yeah, you're right on. And yeah, we were we were lucky, right? We were lucky that we had people like you and a group that kind of were trying to take a balanced approach. You know, it breaks my heart when I hear, you know, the kids that were doing their practices and then then it ended and now they don't now they don't participate in sports, right? They don't participate in that soccer that they were about to do. And and there's a number of kids that just they no longer do sports and being that sports has been kind of my major release and this is my own selfish way right like i ran this morning because that's how i get going and i i can't imagine someone telling me when i was in those formative years that i couldn't do it because of because of a virus and that that happened across the country like you said now let me shift gears a little bit one of the big concerns that we and you i know we're having to think about this was this cardiology or the heart concern so for those out there if you remember and this still comes up right that COVID can definitely impact 
one's heart, make it have be inflamed and not work as well. And that was a that was a, one of the unknowns that started to come out. We were all kind of nervous about it. What what was your thoughts on that, and how did you manage that? And when we were making those decisions, especially when it came to return to play, yeah, that was uh that came a little bit, and I think this kind of got a part with uh, Eduardo Rodriguez from the Red Sox as being someone who was diagnosed with myocarditis, which, you know, it's interesting if we just flipping back back for a second, I think what really made COVID real for people was two events, Rudy Gobert. And and so again, sports thing that, oh my gosh, this is in the sports world now. And what's the sports world going to do? The NBA. And right before that, Tom Hanks, I think if those two things didn't happen, I don't think that people would have had a seriousness of what was going to happen after that. Because I think, you know, going back to the sports in Hollywood, as far as having a big influence in this. Yeah, Rudy Gobert shut down the world. Uh, I mean, or it shut down the, the world of sports, right? Because I was excited. And I've told this on a previous episode. I was so excited to watch the NCAA basketball tournament that was happening. And once Rudy Gobert had it, they're like, nope, we're done. And just, you know, remember the the day or the two before where he was tapping on all the microphones because he was mocking COVID at the time. And then yeah, he comes and up him and his buddy Donovan later, Mitchell so. got it right. Yeah. I mean, that was crazy. Anyway. All right. Sorry. The, the Back to the hearts. My fault. <laughs> so, you know, Eduardo, Eduardo Rodriguez from the Red Sox had myocarditis. And so that kind of said, oh, my gosh, well, we need to look into this further. And I have lots of colleagues that are very interested in the cardiac effects of various problems. And obviously, myocarditis is a, a concern for possible sudden cardiac death if if not treated well. And actually, interestingly, if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines for medical conditions affecting sports participation that has been out prior to all this with COVID, fever is considered a contraindication to participate in sports because you don't know if that person has myocarditis or not. It's been on there forever. So so that is that is a sports participation. If you have a fever, you should be participating, going back and referencing that Michael Jordan game. In the big picture of things, you know, that was the thing that we didn't know. And then we start hearing more and more reports, you know, at, at the uh, collegiate level, there's people that are testing. And this is, again, where now you have a bunch of institutions and sports places, you know, whether it's, it's college sports, professional sports, where they have resources to do all sorts of testing that we didn't have available to us at uh, high school level, at least not readily. You don't have easy access to cardiac MRI. MRI and all those types of things. And this is also, again, at a time where things are shutting down medically. So, you know, you don't you don't have as much access to all this. So now we're trying to figure out, well, gosh, is, is COVID going to affect these kids' hearts? And is this going to be an issue for sports participation for these kids as well? So we had to figure out a way that, and going from guidance from many of our cardiology colleagues, you were on an episode or two that we had with some of our cardiology colleagues around the country who were trying to come up with these recommendations and return to play guidance. What should we do? So we put together this return to play form for our state that was used at several other states as well that basically had a screening questions we had screening exams and so any kid that was diagnosed with covid they had to go to their physician to get cleared and make sure that these things weren't there and then go through this five step or seven step i guess it was return to play progression before they could go back and officially participate so you know if you had a covid diagnosis and you're 10 days quarantine and then you got to do seven days potentially after that you're off for almost three weeks from your sports at that time and Boy, it created lots of concern for us. I mean, we certainly saw it there, but I don't know that we saw it as much as an issue in high school sports. And I think, you know, we get a couple of these early cases and then everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is going to be everybody. But fortunately, it was a rare thing. It wasn't something that was super common. I mean, it's no question that it's out there and it can affect the heart. But we had to try and figure out a way to how do we how do we manage this part of things, too? It was a scary part. Yeah, I remember your buddy that's the sports medicine doc at University of Iowa. 
Mm-hmm. Andy Peterson and Andy Peterson and we had I remember being on those podcasts with him fat I mean just fascinating you know the work that the Big Ten had done I mean they have a, a landmark paper that we'll put in the show notes that really went through these kids these collegiate athletes that had COVID and they did cardiac MRIs on all of them yep and it gave us the data actually gave us very important data about how many actually had inflammation of the heart and how many of them had inflammation of the heart and symptoms. And this became such an important paper because when the vaccine came out and people started seeing some of the inflammation of the heart from the vaccine, which was so much less, like so much less than if you had COVID. Like if we didn't have that Big Ten paper, like people like me were going to have a lot of hard time talking about the vaccine and the reality. Sure. And going back to Eduardo Rodriguez, this is what I love about this podcast. I mean, I forgot all about it. <laughs> That's rich stuff. That's great. It also was clear that if you look at just when we see inflammation of the heart and who usually gets it, it's men. And they're usually between 18 and 30 or 15. And like it's these young adult men. That's the risk group. That's there you go. That's one of our risk groups. That's just for inflammation of the heart from other infections. So it's a real thing. But yeah, it was hard, man. I remember when my daughter got COVID and we're like, she's out for almost three weeks. I was like, what? And this is obviously a year and a half in. I'm like, is that true? Mark, are you kidding me? Yep. I remember the emails I got from you as far as what were what were the rules at that time and how quickly could we get back? And this is that was also at the same time, interesting when your daughter uh, tested positive, that we were trying to look at the guidelines again. And we were kind of hamstrung a little bit there because we didn't have any national organization that was changing or budging their their stance on how long it could be, even though again, as time went on, we started to see less and less of an issue than what we were fearing at, at the start. And it was one of those things that I, I'm like, boy, I think we carried these return to play forms longer than we probably needed to ultimately. I mean, again, in all cautiousness, but it was it became a drain on pediatricians and pediatric offices in order to have to do this after a while to clear all these kids back to their sports participation. I mean, again, it was a necessary thing at the time because we didn't know. But yeah, going back, I actually went and listened to a couple of the old podcast episodes on COVID that we did because I was just trying to say, I'm like, what stupid stuff did we say back then? <laughs> But, you know, going back to what you just brought up as far as this inflammation around the heart, you brought up a very good point. I actually made a note to it um, when I was doing this because I thought this would be relevant because this was a big discussion we had as well. You brought up this specific point that we are doing all these fancy tests on people now after COVID, many of whom were asymptomatic, many of whom had no cardiac symptoms whatsoever, and we're finding these subclinical myocarditis cases. And you brought up the great point, which I think is interesting, is do we know with any other virus that we have out there because we we don't do any of this stuff on a routine basis of how much subclinical myocarditis may be in there with other viral illnesses that are out there. And we don't know. And we were bringing this up with COVID and treating COVID as, as something completely different. And again, there it is. But in the big picture of things, what is really that incidence in other things? And is it more of the subclinical stuff that goes on that we just don't know about of these other viral illnesses? Absolutely. Right. I mean, influenza, maybe some of the other coronaviruses that we've never, you know, that we don't even pay attention to because they give you a little cold. But you're, yeah, it's, a, it's, I'll just say this. Wow. Right. Right? Like, I mean, it's just like, oh my goodness, what, what we went through in that regard. So we kind of hit on the club sports versus the school sports. Is there anything else? Like any other like stories, experiences? I, I'll just say this. My experience was like, we were all kind of working with these different clubs. I was working with swim because I'm a big, I love swimming. And then water polo, we were working some water polo, I think soccer. And if you look at the data around outbreaks in sports, it was wrestling, basketball. It didn't seem like any outdoor sports 
didn't even seem like swimming. Anybody got it unless you hung out in the bathrooms together or in the locker rooms together, you know, and were coughing all over each other. I, I don't know about you. Any any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily saw like massive outbreaks from sporting events types of things. Obviously, there there can be clusters and it's always going to be hard to tease that out just because, you know, these kids were in school. They were doing social events. They're involved in sports. They, you know, where was the actual truly what was the event? And you know, when we know that there was so much asymptomatic illness as well, but boy, I, God bless all the contact tracers that were doing all the stuff at the time, because I don't know how they could have figured most of that stuff out. And, and again, they probably didn't. And which is why we were super cautious with all the stuff that we were doing at the time. But I don't know. I don't I don't think that there was as much of an issue from sports as we really thought that there would have been. You know, you bring up the wrestling part, which was interesting because there were, we did have that part discussion in the podcast episode where you were a lot more concerned about wrestling happening uh, as a winter sport because we did an episode about that. But then Andy brought up some very interesting points to you about wrestling is that it was a lot easier to individualize and put people into pods because they could just wrestle against one partner and contact tracing would be a lot easier for that sport than there would be most of the other sports where you're you know playing basketball and you got you know people on there and playing against each other and you got people rotating in and out and so you don't know who's exposing to who but wrestling for practice it was going to be a lot easier thing to be able to get through wrestling he was right andy was absolutely right and i remember now that you brought that up i remember i was like oh yeah right like look if you want to wrestle and you want to take the risk it's only going to be one other person you're probably giving it to right because you're going to mask yourself outside of it but it was things like i think there was a great cdc paper about hockey where it was like this pickup hockey key and they basically gave it to each other probably maybe the after party that usually happens after the <laughs> hockey games this like, was adults the, right yeah these were adults <laughs> but you know these things but he was absolutely right like look you got and i remember like oh yeah i guess you're right you've only got one other person so okay i don't know i want to know what was the hardest part of the pandemic for you well, I still think the hardest part was just the realization at the time when September rolled around and the September 2020 and we started to get all this flack and, you know, knowing what we had done and with the very good intentions that we had done it with. And then there was this big backlash against us. And that was at the point, you know, where we're still talking about healthcare heroes, healthcare heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's march them down the street with a big parade. And that almost to me was kind of the standing, the, the part where I started to see things turn. And I think that was the hardest part is just seeing, you know, all the effort that so many healthcare professionals were putting into caring for patients, trying to do things as best as they could with the knowledge they had at the time and the people that would come out with the pitchforks. And I think that was probably the hardest thing for me to deal with because for me, that almost was kind of like, man, we are like losing our trust in this whole world as healthcare professionals. And that that was really hard to see happen. And, you know, we still see that today. And I, I think probably been my biggest regrets, not not personally, but just as how we handle things as as healthcare groups is I really don't think we did as good of a job of mes messaging as we could have with trying to get information out to people, understanding that, hey, we still didn't know that this was going to be an agile thing. And we were going to have to change our recommendations as time went on. And that may flip flop back and forth. And I think people just didn't know how to deal with that at the time. And I still think they still don't know how to deal with that when things change and being flexible with stuff. And as we get new information, how do we change our messaging to make it so so it's understandable to people? And I think we've just done a, a really poor job at that. And I think that's that's probably the thing for me that was probably the hardest to come out of this whole thing. Yeah, this is a great point. I, and we didn't touch as much on that. The clarity and communication has plagued our country, our society throughout. I think CDC would say that that's been 
troubling how they, you know, how, how they've handled it. And they've taken a lot of flack, for lack of a better word, regarding how that communication has come out and when that should come out. And the politics obviously added to that lack of clarity and messaging because people's political agendas got put into this. Well, and just humility too, also for us as healthcare professionals that we were wrong on some things, right? And just absolutely just saying, hey, you know what? This is what we knew at the time. We were we were trying to figure it out. And, you know, that sounds in retrospect, it sounds really stupid. And that's why, again, it's easy with the retrospectoscope three years later to say, oh my gosh, that was so stupid that we did that. And why did we do that? And that was, that was the wrong thing to do at the time. But go back three years and put us in that perspective of what we knew at the time. And that does make sense. And we have a hard time being vulnerable about being wrong. We're a kind of raised in the in the healthcare thing that we're not allowed to be wrong mm -hmm. right it's almost like we feel like we can't be wrong and and that definitely i think influenced some of that so i know it's mark great that's great great insight okay what was the most influential thing that someone has or had told you that helped you get through the pandemic i think probably just advice that i got of using my voice. I've always been an advocate for things, maybe not as as vocal as I probably am now. And, and again, maybe this is just point of the career where I'm at. You know, I'm 50, almost 51 now. And honestly, I don't care anymore. <laughs> You know, you, you, then that's why I said, I think you're being a little hard on yourself for your article. I think, you know, yes, we have to check ourselves with our emotions a little bit as far as when we, before we start to speak. But I think if we feel passionate about something and it's something that we think is, is the right thing to do, I'm not going to stop and not say something about it anymore. And I think earlier in my career, I would have, but I think that this whole thing has led me to be more vocal, more of an advocate for people than even I was before, just because I think it, it needed to happen. And, you know, again, if I was the one that was going to take hit for stuff as a face for whatever part of it, whatever, I don't care anymore. You know, it's one of those things that I'm just going to do what I think is the right thing to do. And, you know, if I have to eat egg I, on my face, I will eat it. No, I, and I appreciate those kind words. The passion matters, right? Passion is what really helps us lead and, and get things done. So well said. Okay, last three closing questions we like to ask of all the guests. Where would you go if you could visit any place on earth and why? Out of places that I know and I've been and I would go back in a heartbeat any time would be the Grand Tetons. 10 times out of 10. My favorite national park. Now, granted, I haven't been to all of them. I've been to a lot of them. But I love the Grand Tetons. Just love that area. Just love the the environment in general. Grand Tetons. I would say if it's a place I haven't been that I really like to go to at some point, it would be Africa. See something completely different. I haven't been to Africa. Um, I think that would be kind of a place that just to get a different perspective on the world. Awesome. All right. What was your childhood dream job and why? Um, well, which which one? <laughs> <laughs> you can name them all. Astronaut. Yes. Um, firefighter policeman uh and then eventually it settled on on doctor so <laughs> why astronaut why the astronaut because i want to be an astronaut too who knows i mean at the time i mean you know probably six seven there's probably some space thing on tv i'm sure you know star wars when i was a little kid and and those types of things is hey let's go explore the space that sounded cool uh at the time firefighters seemed like a cool job because what what boy doesn't didn't like fire trucks when they were growing up i'll tell you this quick story i totally want to be an astronaut man especially in high school so then i was a pediatric infectious diseases fellow at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I went to a cell biology meeting with the postdoc. And it was in DC, I remember, and we're walking around and there's this booth for NASA. I'm like, dude, seriously? And there was an application to be an astronaut. And I'm like, really? I could apply to be an astronaut right now? 
I didn't apply, but I was pretty excited. I, I was really contemplating it. But, you know, like to be an astronaut, man, you got to do all kinds of crazy stuff. So we do actually have a, a sports medicine physician who actually is with NASA and actually went up to the space station. So in my world of sports medicine, I could still live that dream if I wanted to go to... <laughs> It would take a lot more work because I'd have to get in through all that training and stuff. But yes, and that was he gave a talk at one of our national meetings. And it was fascinating just the stuff that he that he wound up doing uh, with that. And I was following him as he was up in the space station. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. OK, last question. What book are you currently reading? So I'm in transition. So the, the book that's next on my list is Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus. It started coming up on my Twitter feed for a while there. And it's he does he talks a lot about training for running and things like that, but then also just in general in life. That's the the next book on my list. Dr. Mark Halstead, thank you so much. Thanks for the the time this wonderful Sunday morning. Really appreciate all that you have done and continue to do for for kids and, and for sports. Uh and you know, your your work during the pandemic was so important. You're, you're one of the many heroes, one of the key heroes, especially in our state that allow kids to play sports and play sports when a lot of kids didn't get to. So as a parent, I can't thank you enough. Hey, well, thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this because I think this is awesome. I think that having history of these types of things and having this stuff documented like this, I think is is fantastic because we need to look back at these types of things if we ever have another one of these pandemics again of what we did well and what we didn't do well and maybe some things and maybe people look at this stuff and look at what you're doing here so and no short of you get a lot of credit with this too i mean obviously this is your podcast but you deserve tons and tons of credit because you really helped tons and tons of pediatricians in this area as guiding through this pandemic and you were a tireless tireless advocate for kids and and uh, i appreciate you for that as well Thank you, sir. Everyone, be sure to listen to Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's good. Mark, have a great day. Have a great week. Wow, what another great episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Capturing COVID with Dr. Mark Halstead, a sports medicine physician here at Washington University in St. Louis. And don't forget, a host of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Please go listen. Some great episodes there. Now, in this episode with Mark, we touched on his experiences around decision-making in the world of youth sports. His involvement locally here in the St. Louis region with the Athletic Pandemic Task Force, which you heard about with Katie Smith on the previous episodes, and went a little bit more into his thinking and about how it impacted him, where he had, you know, physician reviews talking about and being upset with his recommendations really in the end he was all about trying to get kids back into sports and activities because he knew it was so important for them personally mentally and really helps kids thrive you know I was really struck with the comments he made about you know he knew that it was a risk the recommendations for kids to get back in sports, but he knew and felt it was worth it because we knew enough or we were learning more and more with our experiences. You know, Mark has to be be one of the major leaders both locally and in the state of Missouri of why students, kids, children were able to get back to activities in the fall of 2020. And, and the high school kids actually got full seasons in the 2020 21 season where many parts in the country did not see that uh, i can't thank him enough uh, for all his great work i you know it impacted me and my family uh, my daughter got to run cross country play basketball so mark thank you so so much all right so we have more to unpack 
from the pandemic. And this episode is one of many, so join us in our journey to listen, relate, and reminisce on shared and differing experiences. Now, if you were paying attention to Katie's episode, we told you then that you were going to be listening to Rachel Orslin on this episode, but we threw a curveball. Next episode, we have already recorded. Dr. Rachel Orson's coming on. You definitely want to listen to this one. It's about school and how we got kids back into school. So, Mark, thank you for joining us on another podcast. Another big thanks to our amazing producers, Gabby Smith and Sheridan Thomas. Until next time, have an awesome week. Thank you.